Welcome to Behind the Scenes with Brian, the podcast covering everything from engineering, mining, and mine waste management to whatever else may be on our minds. Pop in your headphones and don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share. And now, here is your host, Brian Ulrich. Hey everyone, this is Behind the Scenes with Brian, and I am Brian, and I am here with Professor Chris Barther from Colorado State University in Fort Collins, and Chris and I have known each other for quite a while. We um, met, I think, originally through the Tailings and Mine Waste Organizing Committee, and we've been uh, in touch over the years and been involved with that committee uh, several times and I've, I've uh, been up to CSU with Chris a couple of times and, and led a couple of classes which was a lot of fun and uh, the, the students really seem to enjoy that class as well. Chris, how are you today? I'm doing excellent, Brian. Thanks for asking. Um, yeah, um, quick note on that class, we're in our third installment of Mining Geotechnics um, and it's going great again. Oh, great, great. I hope that Melanie Davis is giving a talk there this year. Yeah, yeah, we actually have three of your colleagues from Stantec, Amanda Adams, um, Jim Finley, and then Andrew Watson will come up. Oh, okay. <laughs> You've totally ushered out the, the old guard. <laughs> yeah, we've got some new blood in the class. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great, great. So, Chris, you were just at the uh, Geo Congress in Minneapolis, and I was there at the same time, but unfortunately I didn't attend. There were some very good talks there, though, I, I hear, and there was some on liquefaction, maybe static liquefaction, that were really good. Yeah, yeah, there was on the Friday morning, um, there was a static liquefaction session put on by Bar Engineering. Bar was one of the main sponsors having you know, their head office there for the geotech group up in Minneapolis. Um, yeah. So in that static liquefaction, Brian Watts um, and uh, Scott Olson and Gonzalo Castro, I believe his name is, um, all kind of gave quick talks and then had a really, you know, vibrant discussion. <laughs> um, obviously, you know, it's a, it's a very hot topic and a lot of opinions on the matter. So it was really good to hear different opinions and um, immediately afterwards we were thinking wow we should probably follow this up with a session or you know a panel session like this at Tailings of Mind Waste in the fall. Oh that's a terrific idea yeah. Yeah it just seems like everyone everyone's considering it needing to evaluate static liquefaction needing to understand you know what's the state of the practice to be able to apply and evaluate their facilities so you know I think it's something that is on everyone's mind and the more that we can get consensus on appropriate methods to evaluate static liquefaction I think is better for everybody yeah certainly certainly yeah well no that's that's great uh, obviously something that's on the forefront of all geotechnical and, and especially mine waste people right now yeah, absolutely. So, so, Chris, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your uh, your your days leading up to college, I suppose. <laughs> days leading up to college. Um, the funny story there is that I never really wanted to go to college. Um, huh. Both my both my parents are uh, have PhDs in anatomy. Are both 
were and now in the process of retiring as college professors. Um, so obviously they knew the value of a good education, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I really liked sports and random enough growing up in Chicago area, I got really attracted to snowboarding and I wanted to move out west and just snowboard because we didn't, you know, I had traveled out west and snowboarded a few times growing up. And at 17 years old, I was like, oh, that's that's all I want to do. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> okay. Um, but they uh, they convinced me that going to school was of the utmost importance. So then I convinced them, okay, well, I want to go out west. So I wound up in University of Idaho um, studying geological engineering because I knew I liked geology. I liked the outdoors. And it allowed me to be out west, study what I was interested in, and be closer to the mountains. So you were a, you were a vandal. I was a vandal. Um, and the other funny thing there is, uh, you know, a lot of students, because being in academics now, they enter the university not really knowing what they're going to do. And it's just funny that I entered the university at day one as a geological engineer. Yeah. And then I proceeded to get my bachelor's, my master's, and my PhD in geological engineering. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the, the career path was a good one from the start. Yeah, that's great. My son started his college career as a vandal, and he uh, he was in the mechanical engineering department originally. Yeah, it's so, a nice little place up there in Moscow. Yeah, like it, it is. Yeah, and it's, it's funny because it's just a few miles away from... from uh, Washington State University, yeah. which is yeah. a big, big college town. So it's, yeah. there's a small college town right next to a big college town. It, it was yeah. an interesting setting. Yeah. Not much up there, but two main universities in close proximity in the middle of the Palouse. Yeah. 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 No, I, uh, I, I kind of miss going up there. So he didn't finish his college career there, but it, it was, it was nice to spend some time up there anyway. Yeah. So from so from University of Idaho, once I finished, um, I still wasn't wholly certain on what I wanted to pursue. So I applied to grad school because I knew I just wanted more education. And then I wound up in University of Wisconsin-Madison because um, I got an offer there to go to grad school. Um, and I ended up working with Dr. Craig Benson and Tunsil Edel for my master's and my PhD. Um, and then that was a great experience. I know you recently talked to Craig and he's yeah. been an outstanding mentor for me through my graduate career and still remains a great mentor. Oh, that's terrific. And he's he's actually working with a couple of my colleagues here at Stantec, so he's being a mentor to some of my colleagues currently. Yeah, yeah. He served, he he has a he has a knack for that. He's sir he's mentored so many people and you know, I a lot of my uh you know, my philosophies and how I approach teaching and how I approach working with graduate students, I learned at as a grad student. So um, taking those and then ultimately left Madison and got a job offer at Colorado State and then have been here since 2012. And is the snowboarding better here than it was in Wisconsin? Oh yeah, definitely. But you know, as a as a professor, you start to lose the amount of time you have. To get the time, so, um, as do we all. Yeah, I was very ambitious my first year and bought a season pass, and it's I still get up a few times, but I mean, we get busy and there's just not much time. But it's still it's it's very good out here. Yeah, yeah. So what uh, what are the primary courses that you teach there, Chris? 
I teach the, at, at an undergraduate level, I teach the introduction to geotechnical engineering. Um, and that's typically at the junior to the senior level. Mm. And then aside, that's the only one I teach primarily at the undergrad. And then the rest of my teaching responsibilities fall into the graduate level. Undergrads can also take them, but that would include um, seepage, slopes, and earth dams. Mm, yeah. Um, I also teach advanced soil mechanics, and then I teach our class, um, the one right now that I'm offering, which is mining geotechnics, which you've been a part of. Um, so that class is really unique for the university in that um, it's every week we cover a different topic related to mine waste um, management, mining geotechnics related aspects of um, you know the profession. And each week, you know, it's a Tuesday, Thursday structure. I teach the th Tuesday as like an introduction lecture. And then I have a professional, you in the past, um, that have come in and give a, a case study and kind of build out that topic for the students. Um, and this semester we have 21 students in that class and 16 of them, or 15 of them are undergraduates. So we have a lot of interest right now at the undergraduate level in mining, in mine waste. Uh, that's fantastic. And you, one of the remarkable things about the class, in my opinion, was when I've been involved with it, I'll, I'll be up at the front and the, the students are all paying attention and looking at me where I'm used to giving a talk at a conference where everybody's looking down at their smartphones and only <laughs> marginally paying attention. <laughs> if, you find, yeah. if you find somebody in the audience there making eye contact, you, you feel like, oh, I better, I better watch myself here. <laughs> Yeah, no, we and, that, and that's exactly it. You know, the stu it's an elective course, so the yeah. students that are in the course are electing to be there. Um, and then we're always trying to pair it. You know, the graduate students have research projects, and a lot of our research is related to tailings and mine waste. Uh, and then at the undergraduate level, we actually have a senior design group this semester that is doing an evaluation of a tailings dam, um, and there's five of the six members of that group are in the class as well, which obviously for them, it's amazing, right? Because they're hearing everything that they need to hear about what they would want to do for the senior design. And then every single person that comes in every Thursday has different expertise. So they're all getting questions. So my a number of people that have come in have said, wow, your students are really engaged. Yeah, well, they're really interested in this topic. Yeah. <laughs> And, and I think partially because of your connection with the Tailings and Mine Waste Conference, you get some pretty cool research into the program, and some of it's sponsored by industry, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So um, really, just, just a little bit of background, that, that group in the Tailings and Mine Waste Conference has really been my biggest asset here at the university. You know, coming in as a young professor, you're always looking for mentors and guidance. Um, and when I got to CSU, that group really served as an incredible group of mentors for me, uh, providing me background and experience and ideas and funding. So with them, you know, we've really, that's where we've really been able to start and keep our momentum going with our research program related to tailings and mine waste. Oh, that's fantastic. And and you're also involved with Engineers Without Borders, right? Correct, yeah. I got really involved in Engineers Without Borders as a graduate student in Madison. Um, 
and I started working in El Salvador on a wastewater collection project. And when I got here, uh, I wasn't I wasn't keen on taking a leadership role because as you're going on tenure track, you know, services the third item of importance with one A, B, and C being research and two yeah. being teaching and yeah. then the last being service. So, yeah. um, but I ended up taking a, a, the mentor role. So I'm faculty mentor for the group since I got here. Um, and I've gone down in kind of as coincidence, um, they have a project in El Salvador as well. And as we were talking about before, we were just about to leave for El Salvador Saturday and the trip got canceled because of the outbreak with coronavirus. So now we're kind of looking at how to recoup because it's not just the students, but it's also the community members as well that everyone's kind of, you know, collaborating and has a buy-in to the project. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a very good program and it's not only good for the communities you travel to, but obviously a growing um, opportunity for the students and, and they can, immediately see the impact that they make on society. Yep, yep, absolutely. So, Chris, um, I can't remember how long ago it was, but you started working on a big project, in, or a very interesting project in Guatemala. And, yep. And you spent uh, the better part of a year down there, I think. Can you tell us anything about that? I can, I can. So, yeah, um, I had a project that was funded through NSF that was looking at the reuse of mine, waste rock, and tailings as closure covers, primarily as water balance covers. Um, and then I found out, then I met Mike Jacobs, who was at Gold Corp at the time, and they were working on their EcoTails initiative. And one of the one of the materials, one of the ideas within EcoTails was this material that they were calling geowaste. And geowaste it's just a mixture of fast filter tailings and waste rock that they wanted to be able to use to promote water recovery at their mine and then also closure that they could actually stack this mixed material in the absence of a tailings dam. Um, so immediately, you know, I got in contact with Mike and, and started saying, hey, we're, we're doing a lot of similar research in this area. Uh, we would really like to be involved. So as a young professor, you just got to keep pushing the buttons, right? Just keep, hey, Mike, hey, Mike, come in. <laughs> um, and eventually, Gold Corp provided us some support, and we started doing some geotechnical testing for them related to their materials. And they're working, they had been working at um, kind of pilot scale projects in Guatemala and in Mexico. Um, and then the coincidence for me in Guatemala is my wife is Guatemalan. So I was able to kind of link in a sabbatical to go to Guatemala, um, live there for a year, and then work at the mine there uh, on this project related to geowaste. Okay, great. Then that that work is concluded now. Um, it, it's still in process. We, oh, okay. We've published a, we've published a number of papers already. Um, I had a PhD student just finish this past January. So the, the main work we were doing in at the mine was to look at um, the, the hydrogeological aspects, we could say the hydrology aspects of the mine waste. So, so, they, so they built a mine waste rock pile and a geowaste pile uh -huh. um, to, to assess the main hypothesis that the geowaste 
when the, when the potentially acid generating waste rock is mixed with the tailings, the tailings will kind of, you know, sequester the rock and prevent acid generation. That was their main, that was the kind of their main hypothesis that they wanted to evaluate. Yeah. Stop the oxygen diffusion. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so when we knew that they were going to be terminating the project, um, I made a big push to say, yeah, we've done a lot because any any evaluation, as we know, right, is going to need a a, a, hydro, a, um, a hydraulic model, right, to evaluate seepage yeah. in whether it's a cover system or whether it's a an impoundment for you know mine waste management. So we had been measuring all these properties at lab scale, and obviously including waste rock at lab scale is very challenging based on the size of the materials. So our, <laughs> our, our, our pitch to them was to let us go in there and run some field scale hydraulic conductivity experiments to get at, you know, what is the actual hydraulic conductivity in situ. And then also after the testing, we, we, we decommissioned the piles by excavation and evaluating um, density and kind of the mixture ratio of the tailings to the waste rack as a function of space and depth. Mm. Okay. And the, the uh, findings were um, positive? Yeah. Um, um, you know, if we look at hydraulic conductivity, for example, yeah. uh, we, we would expect that the hydraulic conductivity in the field would be higher than what we measure in the lab. Yeah. For a number, for a number of reasons, right. you could look at waste rock particle size, you could look at structure that develops as a function of you know, wet-dry cycling, as a function of root uh, plant growth. Um, but the, the good thing is, is that, you know, we have confirmation that this is the actual hydraulic conductivity we measured in situ, and it agrees very well with literature in the sense of anything we do in the laboratory is going to be one to two orders of magnitude lower than what we're going to be doing in the field, considering yeah. a more a more surficial stress level. Mm. If we were going to, if we were going to go deeper and deeper, say we built a hundred meter stack of geo waste, I would expect once we get down to a high stress that you're going to have more similarities. Yeah, um, yeah. Right, but at the surface level, you know, that's where the, that's where the, you know, the main concern for oxygen intrusion is. Um, and my student, Mohamed Garaki, who's up at Bar Engineering now in Minneapolis, um, hmm. he did some great work on the modeling and we were able to, you know, do forward predictions of the oxygen concentration hmm. in the pile quite well, which from an aspect of evaluating acid generation is great. Yeah, yeah, it's very encouraging. And, and, and so is the hope still to use this for a cover material or is this for mine waste management in general um i i would argue that there there is relevance for both um, yeah so so i would argue that from our i had one student um who was doing looking at the shear strength of the material so we were doing uh tri undrained triaxial strength tests with the tailings by them the filter tailings by themselves and also the filter tailings mixed with the rock you know the geo waste material yeah and cl and clearly in that material we're seeing especially as you increase stress you're getting a continuous improvement on the strength primarily from a transitioning from a more contracted to a more dilated behavior which going back to static liquefaction is very important um so I think in that material, that shows that especially in like a, a tailing, uh, say a geo waste stack that we would possibly construct 50, 100 meters tall, 
there would be potential for that material to exhibit contractive behavior and have less of a concern about potentially liquefying and failing. And then from a cover perspective, it was interesting because going back to the main hypothesis for that experiment, what we saw is that the geowaste in this, obviously Guatemala, it's rainy season and dry season. During the dry season, it's very hot, right? So the material dried out quite a bit. So the material didn't behave as expected with, in the sense that the tailings didn't retain a lot of moisture, but because the tailings could work as more of a sponge-like material, so it could retain water during the rainy season and let water out of the system, kind of evaporation and transpiration, it really worked excellent as a cover. <laughs> so mm, yeah. um, from, our, from our perspective, when we were evaluating the data, we're like, hey, this is exactly what we would expect from a cover system aspect. So I think there's really high potential for both. Yeah, and I, I bet Ward Wilson would be really happy with that because he'd, he'd worked on the uh, cover aspect of that for for uh, quite a while. So he'd, he'd be yeah. encouraged to find out that somebody's carrying that work forward. And, and in some of my previous works where I've tested the sheer strength of the waste rock and tailings mixtures, it, it is very similar. And I, ch I tested it with different ratios of the mixture so that it went from rock to rock contact to a point where the rock is floating in a matrix of the tailings. And I also did, did some uh, uh, compaction testing and I, I found that you didn't really want a filtered tailings. So the fast filtered tailings makes a lot of sense to me where maybe to some people it would be less intuitive that you want a higher moisture content filtered tailings. It just compacted better. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with you. And, and you know, you're offsetting some of that moisture when you're adding the rock in there too. Um, so if you're saying, well, I'm compacting it wet of optimum, it's like, yeah, you're compacting the tailings wet of optimum, yeah. but the whole, the global mixture, right, mm -hmm. is, is, is considerably drier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was, uh, it was very interesting. I'm, I'm glad that there's some advancements in that because the, the combined tailings and waste rock um, concept, I, I think, holds some real promise for the future, and, and kind of tells you that filtered tailings alone is not the one and only technology that's going to be applicable everywhere. Some places we can we can use the combined tailings and waste rock and some some places it can be filtered and some places it can be uh, something else yeah i definitely agree with you i mean i think you know the way the industry is shifting right now it, regardless of what they're going to end up doing for tailings management i think all alternatives need to be considered and you know having that knowledge um, i'm already seeing some companies contacting us at csu saying hey yeah, we know you guys do these tests um, on, on the mixed materials we know you have this expertise we're interested in you kind of collaborating with us to assess this potential for a future tailing storage facility so we're definitely seeing more and more interest in the filter tailings and also you know the fast filter tailings and the geoways from the aspect of well maybe it won't be built but we ought to consider it from the start. And I think the more considerations we get, I think people are gonna slowly shifting to that area. And when filter filtration technology advances to manage these you know, high tonnage throughput facilities, which we know it will, and I think it'll become a reality.
Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. And people just have to realize that the filtered filtered tailings technology is awesome, but it's not a cure-all. You still have to approach it with the right engineering judgment and make sure that you've got the right product on the ground that's going to behave in the way that you want it to behave. Yeah, totally agree. And there's still so many questions. Um, yeah. Because as as we know, right, there, whoever, as we shift the filter tri- filtration technology to bigger mines, then we're going to be building bigger stacks. <laughs> and, yeah. And your your stress your stresses change. Um, you know, you're probably you're clearly going to be developing a phreatic surface within your pile. Yep. Um, so I think all of those questions remain uncertain. So you know, here at CSU is that's a big area that we're focused on right now. And we have a number of projects related to that. And hopefully we'll continue to be working on that since we, one, it's, it's an interesting area. And two, I think it's an area that needs more research. So people have that knowledge. Um, the consultants have that knowledge. Industry has that knowledge to make the right decisions moving forward. Yeah. And it wasn't that long ago that the industry would say, well, we're producing tailings at the rate of tens of thousands of tons a day and the filtration technology just isn't there. And now we have clients that are producing at 300 or 400,000 tons a day and they're taking a hard look at filtration. Yeah, yeah. And and, and those rates are just, it, it's funny to circle back to my class that we were talking about. It's it just, it's bizarre to think about that much mass being produced every day oh yeah try to re- try to relate it to something that's that you can talk to a, a you know somebody who has no mining background about that these and they're only going to get bigger the mines are only going to be producing yep. more and more yep. waste and that's what we have to deal with yep yep and especially with the global demand for things like copper you know they're doubling over a short period of time so there's there's going to be more and more and bigger and bigger and more and more difficult properties that need to come online and course that's where the the overall thought process has to come in and make sure that we're doing everything wisely mm-hmm. yeah and I think that's a you know to, to kind of come back full circle I think that's a big area where CSU is looking to be a collaborator with industry and with consultants because I would argue right now and I would like your opinion but there's not a lot there's not a huge supply of young engineers that are looking at tailings as a career path um, and I think we need to change that and we need more people that are looking in that area and want to go into it and want to because we're going to need more and more bright engineers that want to serve as say engineer of record on facilities and want to take leadership in this area and right now there's not that many. Yeah, well, I, I interviewed a uh, candidate here a while back who eventually joined us, and he was asking me, Brian, why mining? And I gave him the wrong answer, and it wasn't until I was writing a blog on it that I I had the answers that if you're a geotechnical engineer, tailings and, and mine waste has every single aspect of geotechnical engineering in there, plus a whole bunch of other engineering and, and science disciplines. So. You know, there's slope stability and liquefaction and seepage and seismicity and in-situ testing, lab testing and all the analytical stuff. You know, if, if you if you love everything about geotechnical engineering, the tailings really will satisfy your, your need. Yeah, and I 100% agree. And, you know, I was just speaking with a student yesterday, actually, who's graduating with his bachelor's this May. And he's saying, well, I would really like to go in to a mine waste group because I just think these projects are fascinating. 
Um, hmm. And they, they, they look at traditional geotech and think, well, I could do foundations, but can I work on a tailings project? That seems yeah. really cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. That's uh, good, to, good to know. And you've obviously got a good program because we've hired some of your graduates and uh, some very bright students in that program. Well, I appreciate it. Yeah, we, we, we always are trying to, you know, send our best students, which hopefully they're all our best students, <laughs> to, <laughs> to, to you guys and to other groups that we know are looking for these students that want to be involved in the projects and want to make an impact. And, you know, obviously, as you know, when you're hiring someone, you're looking to train them and have them you know, be there for the next, you know, at least 10 years or so, so that they can have an impact on your, uh, on your company. So we want students that are going to be passionate about this topic and really want to get in there and learn and do as much as they can to make that, make that a career path. Yeah. And now it's, and it's great that you've got a program that helps to foster this, these students into um, mine waste engineers that it really uh, helps once they come on the job that they've got a decent understanding of, of the expectations of the job yeah and we're and we're shifting our program more and more towards that role of serving you know we want well, I mean one we're interested in mine waste management and two like that's where we want that's where we believe we can educate engineers to make an impact so for example, one year from now, I'll be I'll be creating a tailings engineering class, um, and then and so the the mining geotechnics as we talked about before is very kind of high level, broad in content, covers mm. a lot of ground. Yeah. Whereas you know we don't really get into design aspects. We're not really doing calculations, so it'll kind of be the shift to do tailings engineering. We'll get into like. The, the you know mathematics of the tailings, the processes that are involved, are looking from you know how it's created to how it's processed, how it's transported, how it behaves. So it'll be much more kind of rigorous engineering um, versus kind of a high level kind of information based class, which is mining geotechnics. Yeah, yeah, great, great. Now let's uh, look forward to that as well. Well, Chris, uh, we've, we've covered a lot of materials. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about today? Um, I, I guess the, the one other thing that, you know, we do a lot of here at CSU research-wise would be barrier systems that we haven't touched on. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. So, you know, we have a, we have a you know, going back to uh, Chuck Shackelford, who's, you know, was the one of the establishers of this program along with obviously John Nelson before him but with Chuck Shackelford and then my colleague Joe Scali and I you know we have a lot of expertise in both liners and covers and we've done a lot of work in looking at the use of, of clays geosynthetic clay liners um, other materials in mine waste containment systems as well and I think that's a really interesting area as well because again as facilities get larger and as environmental restrictions get tighter, I think we're going to start seeing more facilities needing to be concerned about lining, which in the past, you know, no, it was never a concern. So um, that's an area that we have an ongoing research program as well, looking at the influence of, in this, for example, the influence of mine waste leachates on 
um, compatibility of clays and clay systems, which is really an interesting topic as well. Yeah, and that must go back to your uh, postgraduate days with Craig Benson, because I know Craig has a lot of experience with the uh, covers, especially. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, I mean, in my colleague Joe Scalia, his PhD uh, was all focused on looking at barrier systems and, and uh, geosynthetic clay liners. So I think that's an area that, while it's not getting a lot of attention right now, I still think it's of interest um, just from an aspect of needing containment. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, fantastic. Um... Chris, there, there's one more question that I try to ask all of my guests, and that is, what do you think about outer space mining? So it could be lunar mining or asteroids or any, anything non-terrestrial. I think, I'm, I would imagine that the, the deposits are incredibly rich in some areas. Obviously, exploration would be a challenge to find out where it is. I just don't know how you get it back. <laughs> <laughs> that would that would be a challenge, you know. You could that, go out and harvest a ten million ton um, platinum asteroid, but yeah. you'd, you'd have to chop it up into little pieces and have little drone landers or something yeah. safely land it. <laughs> right, because I mean, yeah, even even you know anything coming back to Earth from orbit is coming at a super high velocity. So yeah. then. Then you're sending this, these, I've thought about this before, right? You're sending this massive amount of material. How do you slow it down <laughs> to, yeah. to then have it land on Earth safely so then you can use it? So I think it's a fascinating idea. Um, and I'm, I'm sure there's like, as you gave the idea of a meteor, right? I'm sure there's an asteroid or something out there that is probably like solid, some solid metal that would be great to have. But how do you get it here? Because yeah. we're always concerned about asteroids impacting the Earth and kind of, you know, saying goodbye to everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and now we're steering one into Earth, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, there's there's definitely a lot of interesting things out there, and one of them is the helium three that's on the surface of the Moon, and that can be used for fusion, which is a energy source that doesn't result in a radioactive waste. And so there's a lot of, of uh, people trying to figure out how to get there first. Uh, it, it could solve a huge part of our uh, energy needs. And it, it's in very uh, rare supply on Earth, but on the moon's surface, it is pretty abundant because of the lack of atmosphere on the moon. Oh, fascinating. Again, though, it's an it's a issue of, well, how do you gather it up and how do you bring it back? And then there's some technical issues about, well, we don't actually have any fusion facilities built that can accommodate the helium-3 yet. <laughs> yeah, fun fun things to think about. And, you yeah. know, I mean, it, it, it in the future, it's, it's going to be a possibility. We just don't know when. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe not in our generation, but in some somebody's generation it'll become a reality but i'm sure i'm sure you didn't think 50, like 40 50 years ago that we'd be walking around with devices that we can just see any see the face of everyone and talk to them at any second of the day at any end of the planet right <laughs> no no although back back then there was a, a comic strip called dick tracy and dick tracy had a uh a TV telephone on his wrist that he could look at somebody's picture. So he, they were kind of predicting the, the smart watches. Yeah, all the way back in the day. That's yeah. funny. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, Chris, I appreciate you spending some time with us and sharing with us some some of your information and, and history and, and uh, findings and that sort of stuff. Is there um, anything else you'd like to share with us before we part ways? No, I think it's been great, Brian. Okay. I really appreciate the time. Um, it's been a great conversation. Yeah. Well, well thanks for joining me, and uh, we'll we'll be in touch. All right. Take care. All right. Thanks, Chris. You too. Right, bye. Bye-bye. Well, that's it. I'm Brian, and this is Behind the Scenes with Brian. Until next time, keep on rockin'.